Folks, we are turning now to the second chapter of Genesis. So if you turn your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2, we'll read the text first of all, um, and then we'll make our comments afterward. That's Genesis chapter 2, and we start there in the first verse. And hear now once again the word of our God. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his works which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first was Pison, that is, it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land was good. There's Bedellium and the Onyx Stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hidekel, that is, it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meat for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found in help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh thereof instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. As far as the reading of God's word, may be blessed to our meditation this morning. We come to 
really the second major section of the book of Genesis. And that section, of course, we recognize is divided, not necessarily according to the chapter divisions that we have in our English Bibles. The text itself is divided in the Hebrew. Uh, you remember our maybe our very first comments, our first lecture about the structure of this book. The way that we know that this book is divided internally is through the words Toledot, uh, which translated in the English is simply generations of. And if you look at our text, starting in the fourth verse, you'll note that very phrase. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth. Now that section, starting in chapter 2, verse 4, continues all the way down to the fourth chapter, and where you'll find, sorry, the fifth chapter, rather, the very first verse. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Uh, just briefly, I don't want to spend too much time reviewing, but just to keep our, our bearings as we look at this book, the scriptures divide itself into five major sections with five minor or subsections. And so as you're looking at the text, you'll notice here that from 2.4 to 5.1 is really our first major section, where in chapter 1, verses 1 of chapter 1 down to verse 3 of chapter 2, that functions as a proem, a kind of introduction. We come now into the first major section. That section ends at, as I said, 5.1, which continues all the way to 6.9. 6.9 then performs a section until 11.10. And then we come into our major section, our last and our final major section, starting at verse 2 of chapter 37, going to the end of the book. And so our five major divisions, if you can kind of remember those chapters, are really thematically oriented. The generations start in our section this, evening, this morning, rather, with creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then the next major division is the generation that tells us the story of Adam, the propagation of the human race, which takes us then into Noah, the crisis of the flood. And once again, once we come to Shem, we have again the, the fruition of mankind leading us to Jacob. And that one, of course, pro providing for us an introduction to the rest of Scripture. So we find ourselves in the first major section. And as you're looking at chapter 2, I want you to notice, friend, that the text itself does divide rather easily within its own, within its own section. If you're looking at the first verses after Toledot, so starting at verse 4, going down to verse 7, you have here, of course, the creation of man. The context in which he was created, culminating in the seventh verse with his actual formation and becoming a man, a living soul. The second major section in chapter 2 begins then right afterward at verse 8 and goes all the way down to verse 17, where you have the placement of man. Okay, so we've considered in the first section man's creation. Now we find, and we'll come to this in just a moment's time, that man is taken from wherever he's created and placed in a very different context. And then finally, you have that third section really constituting the formation of woman. Starting from verse 18 down to verse 25, the author focuses our attention primarily on the creation of Eve. So, friend, I want us to look at that just according to those three sections this morning briefly. And so we turn, first of all, to that first section that is verses 4 to 7, the creation of man. And verses 4 and 5 have created something of a syntactical problem for commentators. Uh, there are some who really are, are confused about the, the syntax that are, is here. Um, the word order seems to be confusing. But, but as you look at verses 4 and 5, there is a very simple uh, solution to this. Note verse 5 begins, And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. 
refers then, of course, to actions prior to the third day of creation. So if you look back at chapter 1, you'll notice that the third day of creation was the day in which God created the plants. Whatever we're speaking of here in the fourth verse occurs, fourth and fifth verse, rather, occurs prior to day 3. Okay, so as the writer is taking us back to creation, he orients us, our, he orients us to a time when there were no plants. Takes us back to a time when really the world was uninhabitable as far as man was concerned. But then as you come to verse 6, obviously then the writer turns his attention to what takes place after the third day, the formation of plants and all kinds of herbs. You find here in the sixth verse that God has provided something to water these, water these parts of his creation. There went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now, friend, as we look at this text, I want you to notice just very briefly here what the, what the writer is doing for us at the onset. He takes us to a creation that's very much not complete. Takes us to vegetation that at this moment, take, well, takes us to a place where vegetation at this moment could not thrive. And then he shows us, in verse 6, that even after the creation of these things and before the creation of man, God does nourish that which he's created. He creates the mist that then creates for us a very verdant land. Now this is going to become important, of course, because of what you run into in the seventh verse. If you look at verse 5 just briefly, though, you'll notice that those are the two problems that the writer encounters. There is nothing, no rain falling to water the earth. And note at the end of verse 5, there was no man to till the ground. Verse 6 shows us God accomplishing the first. There was no rain, and so the Lord God created a mist. Now, verse 7, there, were, there was no man to till the ground. Now, in the seventh verse, God provides one. Now, before we look at maybe perhaps the significance of that, I want us to know just how the writer brings the creation of man to us. I said before in chapter 1, you have this striking kind of parallel between the thing which Adam was formed of and the name of Adam himself. Adam, of course, in the original is Adam. The ground from which he was formed is in the Hebrew Adamah. In verse 7, it's the same kind of parallel. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. That is, and the Lord God formed Adam of the dust of the Adamah. Verse 5, if you just cast your eyes a line of truth forward, again the writer would tell us there, there was not an Adam to till the Adamah. If you're reading this in the original, the sense you can't miss then, friend, is that the writer is emphasizing that man here is formed of the of formed of the dust. He's formed of the dirt that he's going to till, the ground that he's called to cultivate. And what's striking is, of course, in the seventh verse, you have this picture then of a man who is of the dust, very much beast-like in that regard. The, the beasts of the earth come from the earth, says the scriptures. But in verse 7, you have that striking moment where there's almost a second kind of creation that takes place. There is, of course, forming man of the dust. There is his formation, his physical formation, followed by the striking thing in which the Lord breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and he becomes a living soul. That's something that's peculiar to mankind alone. The angels are not formed of the ground. They are entirely spiritual beings. The beasts of the earth are not living souls in the biblical sense. 
And so what you have here is men occupying a very unique place in creation at the onset. And we, could, we can't miss either that verse 7 then becomes something of a commentary for us on what you have in verse 27 of chapter 1. You remember there that the Lord, sorry, verse 26, where there the Lord said that he would create man, give him dominion, and here's why in verse 27, because he would be made, man would be made in God's own image. Man being made a living soul is where we're supposed to understand the imago Dei, the image of God residing. And verse 7 holds that out to us. But I want us to ask the question, as we look at this text just briefly, why is it that in the creation of man we begin before the third day? Why does the writer take us back to the chaos in which even vegetation could not grow to take us to verse 7, where man is made a living soul? Well, friend, I think there are a few reasons for that. The first reason, of course, is the writer is very careful to emphasize a very basic historical fact. And that is, our God has created things in an orderly way. He created a world in which habitation, in which not only animals, but even vegetation could inhabit. But the vegetation is not created until God could provide for it. So note this, in verse 6, God provides the water, even though there was then no rain. You can't miss that God is doing something here, showing us in many ways that his Goodness is something that comes to us even in creation. It's an orderly thing. It's something that we can't miss. And if you're looking at the rain of verse 6 as something that is required for the being of the plants, then whenever God creates man in verse 7, man who in a sense is somewhat called already to be one who is cultivating the earth, he is also providing for the well-being, not just the being, but the well-being of creation by creating man. But of course we can't miss this either. In these first several verses, you see how man functions. Could the plant survive without Adam? And the answer, of course, is yes. Man may be the pinnacle of creation, but friend, the writer tells us here that God is quite able to sustain all things by his own power. We find here a picture of divine sovereignty, but we also find here a picture of the reality that again, though man might be the centerpiece, creation consists, subsists rather in the power of God. But as we look now at the second, set, second section that begins in verse 8 and goes down to the 17th verse, we have the placement of man in a different, in a different part of God's creation. And I want you to notice here, it's a striking thing. It's something that we could have said actually from the fourth verse down, but note how the Lord is referred to in these verses. And compare that just briefly as you flip back a page to chapter 1. In chapter 2, starting at verse 4 and following, God is referred to as the Lord God. Again, the small caps there referring to the Tetragrammaton, that Jehovah God is how we would translate that. But as you look at verse, uh, really verse 1 down to um, chapter 2, verse 3, the writer consistently refers to God merely as God. Elohim. In chapter 2, we're encountering then something unique. Here, the writer, writing under inspiration of God's Spirit, invokes God's covenant name, Jehovah. God's covenant name is his primary focus as he takes us to really this picture of man, not only in creation, but as we'll see just shortly, man in covenant. The second thing I want you to notice, friend, is that in this text, 
a lot of space is given to show us the place of Eden. And that reminds us, of course, that we're dealing here with history. We're not dealing here with fable or myth. The writer is intending to give us a historical account. And so he does. He names the rivers. He tells us generally the place in which they would be on the map. And, of course, all of this underscores the reality uh, that paradise was a literal place. Now, at this stage, friend, I need to tell you that most commentators um, go at great pains to locate precisely from this description where Eden is. Um, And you can read all kinds of good men, all kinds of men who are not so good uh, debating precisely where this is. But our focus this morning, as we're looking at the chapter in its whole, is a bit broader than that. Our focus really is on this idea of why is it that this text emphasizes man being created outside of paradise and being brought in. Twice the writer tells us that. I want you to notice this. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Then, slide it down your eyes, just a few lines here, and you'll find in the 15th verse. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Friend, you see, of course, what the writer is doing. He's telling us, and really emphasizing, that man was created outside of Eden, first of all. He was formed somewhere else, we're not told where, and then God brings him in to this paradisical place, this place in which the fruit and the trees of all of, these, of, all of God's creation seem to be most vibrant. What are we learning here? Well, friend, as we look at this text, we can't miss, of course, the idea that Adam is being brought from a place of well, general verdancy, a place of, of goodness, to an even greater place. A place of even more pleasantness. But even as we're reminded of that, we're also reminded, of course, in verse 9, that this is also a place of peculiar commands. Note what he says. Out of the ground may the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can't miss that in Genesis 2, we're told here that Eden has peculiar trees. These trees are planted in Eden alone. And that's significant, of course, because of the command God annexes to these trees, particularly the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 17, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. In other words, friend, what we're finding here is that Eden is a peculiar place. Peculiar because it's pleasant, but also peculiar because it has very specific commands. And that brings us, as we close here, to the question... What do these trees mean? What do these trees mean? Well, first of all, as you're looking at this text, you can't miss that this is an expression of divine sovereignty. We can't miss that. Yes, Adam, of course, is God's vicegerent on earth. He's been been given dominion over the lesser creatures. But God is the one who is Adam's lawgiver still. There are trees which Adam may eat of, and there is a tree which he may not eat. And, friend, we have to recognize, I suppose... I need to say this today, though we probably didn't have to say it before. There is nothing evil intrinsically about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, God created even the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as our God does not create evil, in fact, evil is not something that has positive existence itself. We understand that this tree is not of itself evil. We understand instead that this command is what we refer to as a divine positive law. Something that God could choose to legislate for Adam or choose not to. And there would be no change to the divine character in doing so. So what are these trees? 
Why bring about this law? Well, friend, as we close, just a thought. What you have here, through the curse and also even through the promise that's implied annexed to these trees, you have this idea that these trees function as covenantal signs, seals of the covenant, even sacraments of the covenant to which Adam has been brought. I'll read you just briefly a quote from Herman Hitzius to this point. What was Adam supposed to see in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Here's what he says. We're supposed to understand that Adam here would see this first of all. That man would sincerely contemplate and desire the chief good, but not to endeavor after it, only in the manner and way prescribed by heaven. Not here to give his own reasonings, how plausible soever they might appear. Secondly, that man's happiness was not to be placed in things pleasing to the senses of the body. There is another and a quite different beautifying good which satiates the soul and of itself suffices to the consummation of happiness. Thirdly, that God was the most absolute Lord of man, whose sole will expressed by his law should be the supreme rule and directory of all the appetites of the soul and of all the motions of the body. Fourthly, that there is no attaining to a life of happiness but by perfect obedience. And fifthly, that, ever, that even man in innocence was to behave with a certain religious awe when conversing with his God, lest he should fall into sin. We need to close there, friend, and we haven't finished chapter 2, but allow me to highlight just what Vitzius is pointing out and maybe make a practical application. Note how chapter 2 presents to us man's creation. It doesn't, it doesn't point to man in this moment as just a sing, experiencing one single thing at one single time. Note how the writer shows us man's movement, if you will, through this 24-hour period. He begins outside of the garden. And so he begins in a place that is pleasant, not tainted by the curse. And then God brings him into an even more pleasant place to Eden. Now that's striking, friend, because of course Adam would see the contrast. This was pleasant, but this is even more pleasant, and God is the one who brought him there. And then as we move from there toward the end of the chapter that we haven't gotten to yet, you find that God brings before Adam all of these lesser creatures. And Adam there, in a kind of coronation, exercises his dominion, dominion given to him by God over them all. And then, friend, really the pinnacle is the creation of woman. That's the very thing anticipated in verse 18. Note what the writer is doing, friend. Could God have created woman at the moment that he created man? Could he have created Adam in Eden instead of outside? Of course he could have, but what is the Lord God doing? Well, friend, in that 24-hour period, man has been taught something very basic. And even through his own experience. That his God is a God who is liberal in his goodness. God takes him freely from a pleasant place to a more pleasant. God takes him from a place of loneliness to a place of even more greatness. You see, friend, Adam was shown, just in the second chapter, the goodness of our God. Time and again. And God in this way is tutoring him. Showing him that all good should only be expected from the hand of God. And as we'll come to the covenant of works again tomorrow, not tomorrow, but next Lord's Day morning, 
We'll see that even in the covenant of works, Adam was instructed in this way. God is so good, so liberal in his goodness toward his own. And Adam was taught even in this way to expect it only from God's hand, from no other quarter. We'll close there for the sake of time, but we'll return, God willing, next Lord's Day morning to the second portion of chapter 2, and maybe even move as far into the first part of chapter 3. As we close, let's turn first of all to our God in prayer. Let's, let's go to the throne of grace together once more. Our gracious and merciful God, we come, Father, thankful for your word, and awed by how great you have been in your goodness toward man. Father, what is man that you should be so mindful of him, to attend him with so much goodness? Oh, Father, we are earthy creatures. And if that weren't enough, we are people who have gone wayward from a God who time and time again demonstrates that all goodness is to be solved with your him. Father, we ask that you be gracious to us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you bless these meditations that we might be more humbled before so holy and so good a God. Father, we ask that you cause us even this Lord's Day to meditate on the high place in which you put man, that we might more lament the fall and more be thankful for Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who restores to us what the first Adam took away, and even more. Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless us now as we prepare for worship in the hour to come. Lord, meet with us. Uh, what we require, as we say so often, no man can provide. And so, Father, be gracious to your people in this place, this day, as we ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.